We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And Israelis have wandered as sheep away from the shepherd, the shepherd who promises to protect us, feed us, care for us, heal us when we're, we're wounded and we're ill. But many Israelis, many Jews have forgotten or rejected him. Is God still a good God? Despite all that has happened this year in Israel, the Middle East, and worldwide, there is much to be thankful for. God is good, and His mercies endure forever. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, and today we present a Christmas message to you all from Joel. Do they celebrate Christmas in the epicenter? Well, Carl, thank you so much. And uh, it's a good question that you've raised. How do Israelis celebrate Christmas? And the answer is they mostly don't, which is interesting, right? I mean, Jesus is the most famous Israeli in human history. Uh, The New Testament, the Bible overall, is Israel's biggest export uh, historically, right? And you got 2.2 billion people around the world who celebrate Christmas, but most Israelis don't. So the, the specific answer to the question, how are Israelis celebrating Christmas this year in wartime, is they never do anyway. Uh, now, the Christian population of Israel officially is about 186,000 or so, a little under 2% of the population. Uh, if you add in Messianic Jews, which I do, uh, Jews who believe in Jesus, uh, myself included, now the number is somewhere over maybe 200, 210,000, best we can tell. What's interesting is most Jewish followers of Jesus don't celebrate Christmas either. It's not part of their culture, but some do. And uh, also, it's interesting that, uh, you know, but Arab Christians, they do enjoy Christmas uh, historically. However, this wartime has created uh, additional challenges. In Bethlehem, which is, you know, was ceded to the Palestinian Authority years ago during the Oslo Accords, and there are no Jews in Bethlehem, and the Christian population is dwindling. It's it's becoming a majority Muslim population in Bethlehem, which is uh, sad to me. But uh, this year, they've the, the Palestinians have essentially canceled Christmas because there are no tourists, and because there's such sadness uh, because of this war, and because um, you can't travel easily between Palestinian communities in the West Bank uh, because there's a lot of additional checkpoints uh, because the IDF has, you know, is concerned of uprisings and terrorism and stuff in the West Bank, just as what's going on in Gaza. So Bethlehem has canceled Christmas. Nazareth has effectively canceled Christmas. Not uh, Nazareth is an Israeli uh, community. Uh, Israeli city in the north, right in the Galilee area. And uh, it's not officially canceled. Um, The government didn't say you can't celebrate Christmas. But the truth is that Israeli Christians, as well as others, just don't feel this is a time to sort of publicly celebrate. It it just feels wrong when we've got 140 uh, or so uh, hostages still in, you know, held by Hamas in Gaza. And you've got Israeli soldiers dying and you've got uh, trauma going on on the Israeli side, on the Palestinian side. Palestinian Christians uh, remain, about a thousand of them, in Gaza, unable to leave, dwindling amounts of food, very difficult still. As as we record this, um, there has not been much movement, a little bit, but not much movement to get enough food and medical supplies there. We're still working on it from multiple angles. 
but um, it hasn't been so successful. So it's it's so for a country, the country of Israel, that doesn't celebrate Christmas anyway, um, there is just a subdued mood here. That being said, I'll get to the sort of how some believers are honoring this time of year. And I'll do that in a moment. I want to talk about some scriptures uh, that are very meaningful to me, maybe more meaningful this year because of the darkness that we're facing with the, the, what military military people would say was, is the kinetic war, the actual military fighting, as well as the intense spiritual warfare that there's just a, a cloud of darkness over the land. And I want to share some scriptures with you in a moment that are you know, very uh, relevant to me. Uh, I'm sorry that it didn't work out uh, with, with uh, Carl's Christmas schedules and mine for us to be together, but I'm grateful that he was able to, uh, you know, open up, uh, record the opening to this. So we're not doing sort of a back and forth in case you were curious. But I'll talk about those scriptures in a moment. I do want to say prior to the war, even though Israelis don't celebrate Christmas generally because they're Jewish and they don't believe in Jesus, so they're not trying to honor his birth, and we all know that, um, you know, we don't really know that this time of the year, December 25th, was really the, you know, the day that Jesus was born. But whatever. The, the point is, because of popular culture, Israelis are intrigued uh, increasingly over the years with Christmas. They've seen Home Alone. Uh, they've seen It's a Wonderful Life on television. They've seen other Christmas specials, uh, uh, maybe even a few Hallmark specials. I don't know. I'm not a big Hallmark person myself, but maybe maybe you are. But anyway, and there are churches, of course, in Nazareth and, there, and here in Jerusalem and in other places that do celebrate Christmas with a tree and with uh, carols. Uh, the Anglican Church, which is right in the old city, where you just come in through the Jaffa Gate, uh, it's called Christ Church, run by the Anglicans. I know the the, the Anglican priest there. He's a wonderful uh, born-again believer, fabulous guy, a great team. And uh, they have a, a Christmas Eve service that is essentially an open house for anybody who's a Christian uh, or a Messianic Jew or just any Israeli who wants to come in. And they've uh, people are singing and uh, they're reading scriptures and uh, there's lights and they have food and drink and it's amazing how many Israelis, secular Israelis, other Israelis like to come and just they're curious. I would say mostly culturally. It's just an interesting thing that they've heard about, watched on television, you know, seen in a movie. They're kind of curious about it. Some are interested spiritually. But this year is going to be different, of course, because there's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of grieving going on here. But I will say when we first moved to Israel as citizens, uh, I've been coming, of course, to Israel for I don't know, 36, almost 37 years. But when we made Aliyah, becoming dual U.S. Israeli citizens, uh, and we moved here about nine and a half years ago, uh, we took some friends out to dinner one night, sort of a double date, Lynn and I, and, and they're Messianic Jewish leaders in the country. And we said, you know, so what is the thing? Like, why do Israeli believers in Jesus not celebrate Christmas? And the answer was basically, you know, what we've heard other places, which is, you know, it wasn't part of our culture. Jewish believers in Jesus are already being told all the time wherever we live that we're not really Jews, that we've abandoned our tribe, that we've betrayed the cause. So putting up a Christmas tree, which is not biblical, right? It's, I mean, it's not anti-biblical, but it's not something that the Bible, you know, tells us to do. It's just not been part of our culture. And most Messianic Jews just don't make it a part of their culture. When the Russian Jews escaped out of the Soviet Union at the collapse of the Soviet Union, in 1991. Actually, the Soviet Union, I don't know if you know this or remember, but the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, officially ended on Christmas Day of uh, 1991. So that was, uh, I thought that was interesting for the, the, the most godless uh, 
communist regime on the planet um, who had done so much harm to Jews and Christians to collapse as an empire uh, on Christmas Day, I thought was wonderful. Uh, but when the, the interestingly enough, the Russian Jews, went, about a million came to Israel in the early 1990s and settled here, they kind of were interested in Christmas. Not for the religious side, but they just liked uh, the Santa Claus and the candy canes and the trees. And so so they, they brought a little bit of that culture in. But all that to say, um, we asked our friends, so is it bad? Like if we – are we going to be doing something offensive to our neighbors if we put up a tree and, you know, make some Christmas cookies and I don't know what? We usually have a Christmas party every year. And they're like, well, no, actually this is the first time we heard, Lynn and I heard that – no, actually, Israelis are intrigued. They won't be offended because they know you're a follower of Jesus and you've just come here. And so they said, actually, it would be very interesting. You should have a Christmas party. We said, what? Uh, they said, no, I think it would be interesting. Invite your, you know, invite some believers over, but invite your, you know, your neighbors who are not believers in Jesus and uh, just explain to them what you do. And it's a fun night. And if they don't want to come, they don't have to come. If they don't want to stay, they don't have to stay. I said, we're like, okay. Because it, it required Lynn and me to think, well, why do we celebrate Christmas? Right? It's not in the Bible. And the birth of Jesus is, but it's not something that we see anywhere in the scriptures that Christians are commanded to celebrate that birth or to put up a tree or to make cr- cookies or have punch or give uh, the giving gifts. Well, yes, you can say that came from or is inspired by uh, the wise men bringing gifts to Jesus, but of course, we're not actually giving gifts to Jesus. We're usually giving gifts to each other. And uh, lots of dads think, well, nobody really knows what I want anyway, so I'll just get some gifts for myself, uh, right? So a lot of parents do that, actually. So we asked ourselves, well, why do we why do we do this and should we not do it? And we decided, no, there's nothing anti-biblical about it, uh, about celebrating Christmas, and it's part of our culture. Okay, it's not biblical culture, but it is our culture. And it, for us, it is... Now, it's not about, you know, some pagan holiday. It does turn our hearts as a family to Jesus and to what God did for us by giving us a gift, right? That would be the, that's the main gift. I mean, the wise men brought the gifts to Jesus and to his, and, you know, his parents, right? Joseph and Mary, but, but God is the one who gives the gift to us and he's the father of all good gifts. So that inspires us and, and, and we just love it. We grew up enjoying Christmas and feeling drawn closer to the scriptures, drawn closer to who Jesus is and how much God the Father loves us, that he would send his son as a gift, a free gift uh, with salvation through Jesus, a free gift to us who are sinners and don't deserve it at all. So we decide, okay, we're going to be okay with, we don't want want to offend anybody, we're not going to try to offend people, but we decided, all right, I guess we're okay with, this is not something wrong. And we did have a, uh, invite people to a, a party uh, when we first got here. And, and what was amazing is so many people wanted to come and they started inviting, say, can we bring so-and-so? Can we bring our neighbors? Can we bring that? We ended up having two Christmas parties back to back in two successive nights because the house was just too packed. We couldn't have everybody. And so we did what we did in the States. We, uh, you know, welcome people in. And then there was a, there was like a station in the kitchen where you could uh, decorate Christmas cookies and then we had a Christmas cookie decorating contest at the end of the evening. Um, you would uh, everybody would vote. You, you would put your cookie, your decorated cookie, on a on a little paper plate, and we would put a number on it. And then people would vote for what number they liked the most, and we would tally it up. And uh, somebody got a prize. And people loved that. And our Jewish Israeli neighbors loved that. And then um, 
yeah, we had all kinds of Christmas foods that we like. We didn't have any ham. No, obviously there wasn't any any pork. And we uh, we had a white elephant gift exchange, which was hilarious. Most Israelis never heard of that, and that was that was very fun. And and then we said, look, we want to explain what Christmas means to us. We realize it's not part of your culture, but it is Israeli. I mean, it, it did, you know, in that sense, it's the purpose, the reason for the season started in Bethlehem. It started here in Israel of, of a, um, because it's the, it's the fulfillment of prophecies. And so we had our Israeli believer friends. We would say, Hey, would you read Micah chapter five, uh, verse two? So let's do that. Um, Micah chapter five, verse two, of course, super important prophecy about where, the Messiah is going to be born, right? Micah chapter five, verse two. So one of our friends read it in Hebrew. We followed along in English, but at least it let our Israeli unbelieving, you know, Jewish friends, uh, neighbors hear it in their own uh, language. And this is what it says, right? Um, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, you're too little to be among the clans of Judah, but from you, one will go forth from me, mean God, that's who's speaking uh, through the prophet Micah. Uh, one will go forth from me to be the ruler or the king of Israel, right? And his goings forth are from long ago, his days from the days of eternity. Okay, this is not a normal king, right? This is a king who is going to be born in Bethlehem, but have this eternal background, this eternal history. It goes way, 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 way back. And it, it goes on. If you, you know, it talks about when she who is in labor um, has born a child, uh, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. So we're definitely talking about a birth and we're definitely talking about a specific Bethlehem. We, we pointed out to our friends that it's not any Bethlehem. It's not Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I think there's like two dozen Bethlehems around the world. It's not that. No, it's, it's a very specific Bethlehem. Ephrata was sort of, we would maybe say it's like a county or it's the area in the region of Judah or Judea. So it was a very specific Bethlehem. There was in ancient times, a Bethlehem in the North of Israel, uh, but this was not that. This was the one just outside of Jerusalem, Bethlehem Ephrata of Judea. And so that's like, and, and from where we live, it's like 10 minutes from our house, uh, Bethlehem is. And then it says in verse four, and he, this coming king, uh, will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. That is quite a prophecy. So we read that. Then we also read from Isaiah 9. Okay, so let me just read in English what had been read at that time. I won't read the whole thing, but a few key verses, you're, you're probably familiar with them, but it talks about in Isaiah 9, verse 1, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish, her I think you can fairly say is is the the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. In earlier times, he, God, treated the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali with contempt, meaning God had problems with the Jewish people that were living up in that northern Galilee area. And and because, you know, we all know that the the kingdom of Israel was horrible uh, eventually and became so apostate and resistant to God and terrible kings like King Ahab and Jezebel, his wife, and all those terrible stories from the Old Testament that that God basically brought in the Assyrians to destroy that northern kingdom of Israel. So God the Father treated this land in the north of Israel with contempt. But later on, the prophet says, he, God, shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So the prophecy in Isaiah starts by saying, hey, 
yeah, there's been some serious problems between God and the people of the Galilee. But in the future, God's going to do something glorious there. Okay, what? Verse two, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And it goes on to talk about how God not only sends light, but he sends joy. He sends gladness. People will be rejoicing. Why? Because of verse six. For unto us a child is born, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, there will be no end to, to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. And then from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies will accomplish this. Well, if you take those two prophecies, what what do we learn? And this is the conversation we had with our friends. And we weren't trying to be, you know, we weren't, it wasn't a Billy Graham crusade, just sharing why we celebrate Christmas. Well, because there was a baby born in a very specific place, Bethlehem, in the area of Ephrata, in the province, as it were, of Judea, just outside of Jerusalem. That's where the Messiah has to be born, has to be, because that's what the prophet Micah tells us. That's what God tells Micah, Micah tells us. And then he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but he's going to have this impact, this influence is going to be primarily in the Galilee area, in the north of Israel. He's not going to be born there, but the people who live in darkness, spiritual darkness in the north, they will see a great light. And this Messiah is a child, and yet he's called El Gibor, Mighty God. Well, that was an interesting, and, and so our, our Jewish neighbors are like, "What is it? Like seriously?" And literally, a man came up to us, and uh, or, or it was part of the conversation. He's like, "Wait, you're telling me that the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem, our Bethlehem, or at least now it's the Palestinian Bethlehem?" I said, "I'm not telling you that." You know, Micah, the Hebrew prophet Micah, is telling us that. I had no idea. He goes, "How come they don't teach that in our schools?" I, I, I said, I don't know. He goes, I mean, I went through all the schools. You, Joel, you should go to the minister of education and say, why? Why do you not tell us that the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem? I said, well, I, you know, I, I don't know that that's my place, but why don't you do that? You're, you're, you, you're a Sabra Israeli. You're a native-born Israeli. You know, I just arrived a couple months ago. And they're like, well, I don't understand. How can this Messiah be called the mighty God? And he's also called the eternal father. So somehow he's one with the father, but, the, but he's a baby. How can he be a human baby and be God? I said, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Right? So he goes, so, well, obviously it's talking about Jesus. I said, well, it does seem obvious to me, but obviously most of our people don't see that. What do you do when the world around you is falling apart? It's amazing to me how many people are breathing air. They're going about their business and doing the things you're supposed to do. But if you really ask them, they know that on the inside, they are spiritually and emotionally and relationally dead. If we're not careful, all of us can experience that death. When what we need to do, even as the world around us is falling apart, we need to learn how to march when it would be easier to stay where we are and die. Join me each week on the March or Die show as we discuss that and so much more. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. 
Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. Our verse of the day today is found in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Our prayer requests today are, pray that for the needy, those in pain, those ravaged by war, and those discouraged in Israel, the Middle East, and around the world, God will comfort and strengthen them. Second, pray that God comforts Israel and her people at this time and delivers the rest of the hostages held captive. What I see is a growing curiosity among Jewish people, mostly in the United States, right, where we've gone from only a few thousand Jewish followers of Jesus uh, when I was born in 1967. Now there's almost 900,000 Jewish followers of Jesus in the United States alone. That's amazing. Over 56 years, that's a massive increase. And then if, when you look at the, the growth here in Israel of the number of Jews who are Israelis and they believe in Jesus now, there were only 23 Jewish followers of Jesus in 1948 when Israel was reborn as a country. Today, there's about 30,000 or so. Okay, that's not that many when you think of a country of, you know, 7 million Jews or so, 8 million Jews in a country of 10 million people, but it's growth. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, right? There's so many Israelis who are watching these testimonies by Israelis who've come to faith in Jesus, in Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, Hamashiach, Yeshua Hamashiach. And they've watched these videos in Hebrew, of Jews explaining how they came to faith in Jesus and how their life was transformed by Yeshua, those have been watched by, I forget the exact number, 50 or 60 million people, or 50 or 60 million times. That's telling us something. Those data points tell us there's a real curiosity, and that's encouraging, because I would say that we are living at a time where the people are in great darkness. We are living in Israel's darkest hour right now. Uh, the savagery, the barb of Hamas, really demon-possessed terrorists coming across our border and doing just unspeakable atrocities to our people, killing more than 1,200 of them just in one day alone, the biggest slaughter of, of Israeli civilians in the history of Israel, the biggest slaughter of Jews on one day since the Holocaust, and then, of course, the hostage crisis and then the fighting that's ongoing. Uh, there is a military battle, but there is also a spiritual battle. Satan has been unleashed to do just all kinds of wickedness. And that's who Satan is, right? He, you know, Jesus describes Satan in John 10, 10 as a thief. And Jesus says he comes to rob, kill, and destroy. And that's what Satan did on October 7th. That's what he's trying to do today. And yet, God doesn't let his people just stay in great darkness. He sends a great light. Jesus is that light. He describes himself as the light of the world. And he came 2,000 years ago, where? To Bethlehem. Not just any old Bethlehem, but to Bethlehem, Ephrata, in Judea. Just 10 minutes from where I'm speaking to you. And then he went to the Galilee to bring that good news. And it's really an amazing thing. And I, I look, if you just look humanly speaking at where Israel is right now as we end 2023, it's very, very sad. There's so much grieving. There's so much death. So many people have been wounded. Uh, so many hostages. Yes, yeah, some have been released by God's grace, but there are still 140 or so hostages 
trapped in those tunnels in Gaza. And, 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 and then what? Is there any way to get them out? As I record this, it, it, humanly speaking, it looks pretty bleak. And Israelis are angry at God, uh, many, not all. But uh, I'm like, where was God? Where was God? I, I sat with an Orthodox Jewish friend of mine. We had lunch together. And, you know, he's a kippah wearing, he wears a yarmulke, Orthodox Jewish person who has, who's a very prominent person in this country. And he's like, I'm not sure if I even believe in God anymore. Wow. That's what that really hit me. Because if you're Orthodox Jewish and you say, I'm not sure if I believe in God anymore, then a Christian has to have an answer to that, right? And the answer is um, simple, but it's hard to hear. The answer is that God is our shepherd, right? Psalm 23, King David tells us, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, David himself was a shepherd, but he understood because he was a shepherd, he understood that the Messiah that was coming and God himself is our shepherd, And he loves us and he wants to take care of us and protect us just like a human shepherd would. The problem is that so many Israelis, so many Jews worldwide have either forgotten that God is our shepherd or not embraced him. And and, and we all like sheep have gone astray, says the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. And Israelis have wandered as sheep away from the shepherd, the shepherd who promises to protect us, feed us care for us, uh, heal us when we're, we're wounded and we're ill. But many Israelis, many Jews have forgotten or rejected him. And the problem it, it, with that is it's not like, well, it'd be nice if you follow the shepherd if you want to, but if you don't, okay, so your life isn't as good, but it's fine. No, the Bible is very clear in the Old Testament and the New that there are savage wolves out there who want to devour us, right? And they're all driven, the, the savage wolves are driven by Satan, Why does Satan hate Israel? Why does he hate the Jews? Because God loves us. And Satan is the opposite of God. He's not equal, but he's opposite. So if God says, I love the Jewish people and I want to love you and bless you, Satan says, fine, I hate you and I want to, you know, curse you. If God says, I'm going to give the Jewish people a promised land, Satan says, I'm going to take it away. And if God says, I'm going to um, give you Jerusalem as a city of peace, Satan says, I'm going to make it a, a Jerusalem, a city of bloodshed. If God says, as he does in the scriptures, that he's going to make the Temple Mount holy to his name, Satan says, fine, I will desecrate that space. And so there are savage wolves who who come to rob, kill, and destroy us. And if we're not under the care and the loving, protective arms and keeping of the shepherd, the good shepherd, we're vulnerable to being attacked. And is it the shepherd's fault if the the sheep refuse to be under his care? No, it's not. but the shepherd does go looking for those sheep and does try to bring them back. That's where we are today. So many Israelis have wandered away uh, or forgotten there even is a shepherd. They don't, and we're not even talking yet about Jesus, right? All, everything I just told you, you can take from the, from the Old Testament. But of course, Jesus comes and explains that he is our good shepherd. And he's our great shepherd. And Peter tells us he is the chief shepherd of our soul. So, So humanly speaking, it looks very dark right now. This is Israel's darkest hour, as we've been describing over the last few months since October 7th. And yet, Jesus is the light. And the believing community here, people who know Jesus personally, Yeshua, and love him, and even in our flawed ways, follow him and seek to be a a witness, an ambassador for him to our people, to our country, we are the light. Jesus said he is the light of the world, but then he says you are the light of the world. And that's our call in this Christmas season. It doesn't have to have a tree. It doesn't have to have a party. But we need to be the lights here in this dark land. 
because Israelis are looking for light. Maybe when they see the light in us, they will reject it, maybe, but we need to be that light. We can't hide ourselves under a bushel. We need to be a city set on a hill. So people, not, not, so not, they're, they're not praising us. They're saying, why are you different? You're an Israeli citizen. You're going through what we're going through. Why do you have light in your eyes? Why do you have hope in your eyes? Why do you even have some measure of, uh, of peace that seems to doesn't, doesn't even make sense for the moment? And that's an opportunity to talk about this Messiah that God promised and then delivered on and who's available to us today and is eventually coming to reign over Israel and the whole world. So that's our heart. That's what Lynn and I are. That's what we embrace. That's what the Joshua Fund team and staff here love so much. And uh, that's what we've been going through. Yeah, we're battling grief and uh, pain, and yet we're trying to stay focused. Lord, you have us here for a purpose, and how can we serve you? And um, it was great to have Carl and uh, one of our other senior staff members over here just a few weeks ago to meet with, to pray together, for, uh, for them to go see and meet with our various Joshua Fund partners, to see the humanitarian relief work that's going on right now, uh, to see how the millions of dollars that you and others have, have graciously donated in just in the last couple of months, how it's being deployed to touch people's lives, to care for people. And um, I think the Joshua Fund has never been more relevant or important, uh, the work that God is doing through the Joshua Fund, than it is right now. We're 17 years running. We've got a lot of experience. We've made our share of mistakes over the years. We've corrected those. Uh, we've had staff come and go. We've had board members come and go. They've, they've been able to serve with us for a season and bring their uh, expertise and, and insights and, and heart and, and uh, of compassion. And then, you know, God has brought us other people. And But over these years, it's amazing because uh, God has brought in uh, donations over 17 years of $100 million to the Joshua Fund. I, Lynn and I never imagined when we founded this organization in 2006 that God would be so generous, but he's not doing it for us. So we don't, you know, we don't take a salary uh, from this organization. We never have, but we we're so grateful that the Joshua Fund is a pass through. It's a, it's a, it's a mutual fund, right? People are investing and they're donating into the Joshua Fund. And then the team is figuring out how can we bless Israel, the people of Israel and our Arab neighbors. How can we be lights in the darkness? How can we strengthen the local church to be the hands and feet of Jesus? How can we help them to show the love of Jesus in addition to sharing the love of Jesus? How do we refresh and encourage pastors and ministry leaders here in, in the land and in the epicenter region? How do, we, how do we equip the local believers to provide humanitarian relief to their friends and neighbors who are poor, needy, vulnerable, and are ravaged by and traumatized by war and terrorism. How can we strengthen the church? That's the heart. How can we make sure that everybody in this country has at least heard the good news uh, that there is a God who loves us and he cares for us. He has a plan for us and he sent a son for us. Most people haven't even heard that story. Uh, the greatest story there is. And when you're at a moment where people are dying every day in war, where rockets are being fired at us and not just from uh, the South, not for just from Gaza, but we're being attacked from uh, the North by Hezbollah in, from Lebanon. And we're missiles, long range ballistic missiles are being fired at us by Iranian proxy forces uh, called the Houthis that are uh, terrorist uh, forces in Yemen. It's like a, almost a 2000 kilometer 
flight that those missiles have to come. We've been shooting them down, praise God, but they have also caused damage in this country. So we're getting attacked from all sides. In the West Bank, there's tremendous uh, terror operations underway, and there are IDF operations to to fight those things. And now we're, you know, and then Iran is threatening us every single day um, and the world is condemning us. And the UN just voted to force us to have a ceasefire. Uh, fortunately, the United States vetoed that. But it's like, you know, th- close on a few thoughts. Uh, a ceasefire? I understand that it sounds good. Like, hey, let's just stop fighting. But imagine if your children went to an elementary school around the corner from your house and, you know, four or five or six lunatics with automatic weapons came into your your children's elementary school, started killing all the children. Well, the police show up, the SWAT team shows up. Well, well, and so they're trying to move in. And what if the mayor says, hey, hey, ceasefire? Do you think the, the criminals or the terrorists inside the elementary school are going to stop killing people because the mayor says to stop? No, they came there to rob, kill, and destroy. So the only option you have is to send law enforcement in to either shoot them and kill them or disarm them and arrest them, that's the only way to stop the threat to your children. You don't call for a ceasefire if, if somebody's trying to slaughter your children. And so those who are calling for a ceasefire at the UN or wherever else, they're doing the exact wrong thing. What they should be doing is calling on Hamas to surrender and putting the blame where it begins in the Iranian regime. That's part of our job is to educate people about what's happening. But but spiritually, we're in a season of Christmas we're in a country that doesn't celebrate Christmas, but a country that is living in great darkness and needs the light of Yeshua. And so thank you so much for praying for us all over here, for Israelis and Palestinians. People are suffering on both sides, but we need to pray. We need to pray for victory over the evil terrorists. We need to pray for the release of all the hostages immediately and safely. We need to pray for the mental and spiritual and emotional recovery and healing of Israelis and Palestinians who have been traumatized on both sides. It is, it's hard to describe how bad it has been, especially for people on the front lines. We need to pray for spiritual and emotional and physical recovery for our soldiers. We're going to pray that there's a future for the people of Gaza. And we got to pray for the Christians that were in Gaza right now suffering. They need a, a safe haven. They need more food and water and medical supplies. And so uh, that's what we need to pray for. And prayer is not like, well, I, don't, I have no other way to help. No, prayer is asking God to do what he wants to do anyway. Um, if we're praying in the spirit, we're praying a scripture, we're praying according to his will. He says, if you pray according to my will, then you have then you know that I've heard you. And if I've heard you, then you know you have what you've asked us for. So we need to be praying God's will. And yes, ultimately we want to pray for peace, but even more, I mean, not just geopolitical peace. Yes, Jesus came to be the Prince of Peace, but Jesus's main objective is not to bring geopolitical peace or we would have done it already for the last 2000 years. His main goal, I want to end on this thought. Jesus's main goal is to bring you into a peaceful relationship, to make peace between you and God the Father. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know God, if you're if you're not a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, you're at war with God. You, you may not realize it, but that's true. God, Jesus doesn't want you to be at war with God. And even if you don't realize it, if you haven't said yes to Jesus, then you've then effectively said no. So Jesus comes to offer you a free gift, salvation, forgiveness, redemption, healing, and eternal life. And, uh, and of course, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're struggling through this Christmas season— 
may you feel God's love and mercy. May you repent of your sins and and just draw close to him in the scriptures and prayer, but also with other believers. Don't isolate yourself. Spend time in a Bible study, in a congregation uh, with friends that know Jesus and can encourage you and can help you, can answer your questions. Find an older, wiser believer in the faith who can take you under their wing, as it were, and disciple you to help you answer your questions and help you grow strong in the Lord so that you can then help others. Jesus has given us a gift, but we're not supposed to hold on to it for ourselves. And this Christmas season, I want to encourage you to say yes to the free gift of God through Jesus and then share that gift with other people. And when you pray for, stand with, encourage, and financially support the Joshua, you're helping us offer that free gift to the people here in the epicenter. And uh, they may not want to hear it. They may not be ready to hear it. Um, So sometimes we just have to show them the love of Jesus until they're ready to hear uh, the message of Jesus. Thank you so much for your love and encouragement. I can report that Lynn and I and our, our, our family and our team are doing well. It's not easy. It's the hardest thing we've ever been through. But we, we, we have a sense of purpose and we know God is using us. He's providing strength that we don't have physically and spiritually, emotionally. And we're grateful for, for the Joshua and team. And we're grateful for all of you who pray for all of us and provide financially. Thank you. Don't stop. Uh, We need your help more than ever. I just want to say thank you and Merry Christmas. And um, may the the light of the world shine in your family, in your hearts, your community. We need him to show himself and shine brightly here in Israel at the center of the world. God bless you and Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening to Joel's Christmas message. We hope that it encouraged you and gave you a peek inside the Rosenberg household as we at the Joshua Fund continue to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. From all of us at the Joshua Fund, we wish all of you and your loved ones a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. If you have found this podcast really valuable, please get in touch with us. Let us know who you are. Are you someone who is searching for Jesus? Here's where you can find it. Do you want to talk about something else on this show? Do you have a question you wish Joel to answer? Send any comments you may have to podcast at joshuafund.net. Your feedback is incredibly valuable to us as we develop this podcast. As always, you can check out our show notes for anything you heard on the podcast that you'd like more information on. For Joel Rosenberg and the Joshua Fund Ministry team, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks for listening to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg. I'm Dr. Lauren DeVille, a practicing naturopathic physician in Tucson, Arizona. In my podcast, Christian Natural Health, my guests and I discuss topics ranging from nutrition, sleep, hormone balancing, and exercise to specific health concerns like hair loss, anxiety, and hypothyroidism. I'll also interweave biblical principles as they apply throughout the podcast because true health is body, mind, and spirit. Listen to Christian Natural Health for free at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcast platform.